Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about Astley's Amphitheater. This episode's topic takes us to nearly the end of Emma. Knightley and Emma are now engaged, and Harriet has been sent to London to stay with Isabella and John Knightley, both to see to a tooth that has been bothering Harriet, and you know Isabella's happy to help with that, (laughs) and also just to get Harriet out of Highbury, since it would be real awkward for her and Emma to be meeting (laughs) now that Emma is engaged to Harriet's crush. It's fine. Everyone's doing great. (laughs) So Harriet is now off in London, and guess who else is in town? Hmm. One Robert Martin. Mm. Surprise, surprise. So this is Mr. Knightley telling Emma what happened. It is a very simple story. He went to town on business three days ago, and I got him to take charge of some papers which I was wanting to send to John. He delivered these papers to John at his chambers and was asked by him to join their party the same evening to Astley's. They were going to take the two eldest boys to Astley's. The party was to be our brother and sister, Henry, John, and Miss Smith. My friend Robert could not resist. Hmm, what's going to happen? <laughs> Robert's like, oh, oh, Astley's. Um, oh, and Miss Smith will also be there. Oh, well, definitely, yes. I will, yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yes. <sighs> Goodness, I love it. If he was at all on the fence, he was like, yes. <laughs> I would love to see some horse riding. Please and thank you. I would love to see Harriet. I mean, Astley's. Uh Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. To start us off, we'll give a broad definition and history of Astley's before getting into a more detailed background and how it ties back into Austen's work. Astley's, as Austen writes it, was shorthand for Astley's Amphitheater, which was formally opened by Philip Astley in 1773. It's actually often described as the first modern circus. The structure burned down in 1794 and again in 1803 and was rebuilt each time, becoming more and more lavish. So people wanted this place, you know? They were committed. (laughs) They were committed. Mm -hmm. Astley's entertainments were wildly popular. And before Philip Astley died in 1814, he had locations all over London, as well as internationally, with noticeable examples in France and Ireland. The entertainment largely revolved around trick-riding horses in what became known as hippodrama, or equestrian-based melodramas. Performances often depicted famous battles like Waterloo or the Battle of Agincourt. After Astley's death, his son John continued the performances, and Astley's, as a theater, subsequently passed to several managers throughout the 19th century, including Dion Boussicot, for my Irish lit people, and it closed in 1893 and ultimately was demolished in 1895. So that was the big picture, but let's get into a bit more detail, starting with some background on Philip Astley, the person. So he was born in 1742 in Newcastle under Lyme as the son of a cabinet maker. In 1759, at the age of 17, he enlisted in the 15th Light Dragoons, the first light cavalry regiment of the British Army, and fought in the Seven Years' War. 
Astley was a large man for his time, standing over six feet tall. And according to Marius Quint's biography of Astley in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, he, quote, exceeded the regimental height limit by some six inches, but was quickly noted for his exceptional talent at riding and breaking horses, as well as his good looks and powerful bearing. That's a nice comment, you know? Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay, what Good a compliment. soldier. All right. Mm-hmm. Astley's fantastic equestrian skills, developed during his military career, were at the heart of his success as a showman and entrepreneur. According to Quint, quote, a series of dramatic rescues and daring captures in battle at Ensdorf, Freiburg, and elsewhere earned him promotion to the rank of Sergeant Major in 1763, along with presentation to George III. He left the army in 1764, and according to some sources, his commander gifted him a white regimental horse as an additional thanks. By 1767, he was working as a groom and advertiser for a riding school in Islington, near London. This combination of horseman and advertiser turned out to be the real impetus for his later success as an entertainer. He was learning some things. Mm-hmm. In 1768, Astley opened his own writing school in a fenced-off field in Lambeth. Monica Matfield, in her book, Becoming Centaur, 18th Century Masculinity and English Horsemanship. Great title. I love it. Quote, The amphitheater opened its doors for the instruction of horses and humans of all genders and ages, while providing the stage for weekly horse auctions. Astley's writing techniques would later be published in his book in 1801, titled Astley's System of Equestrian Education, Exhibiting the Beauties and Defects of the Horse. And his methods generally emphasized a concept of cadence between rider and horse, and used elements of trick writing as foundational principles for all riders, regardless of what your purpose for writing would be. He also never lost sight of his past as a soldier and often considered his riding school something like a training ground for potential cavalry soldiers. While Astley taught in the riding school in the mornings, he spent the afternoons putting on trick riding performances. So, you know, business in the morning, fun in the (laughs) afternoon. Astley was far from the first trick rider to exist. However, he did make meaningful contributions to the art. For example... Astley is credited with discovering that the ideal size for a riding ring is 42 feet in diameter. This ring size, which is still standard today, created enough centrifugal force to help with balance on the horse and generate the additional gravity needed to push the rider into the horse's back. So we got physics going on here. I know. And it's wild that that physics stands up after this, like, 200 years ago that this dude was like, this is the ideal ring. He figured it out. I think that's so cool. Astley's greatest contribution, however, was his very real talent for creating stories and spectacles around these feats, which accounts for his fame. So he knew how to really turn it into a show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not just really accomplished, but like, let's turn this into something that people will will pay for. Let's, Let's turn this into something that compels audiences. So one example of his first spectacles, according to Quint, had Astley billing himself as, quote, the English hussar, and, quote, promised such feats as straddling two cantering and jumping horses doing headstands on a pint pot on the saddle, 
at a parody of writing by a foppish tailor. You know, easy stuff. Easy Mm -hmm. writing stuff. Oh, yeah. Like, (laughs) we can all do this, right? No problem. Mm -hmm. In this act, according to Steve Ward's book, Father of the Modern Circus, Billy Button's The Life and Times of Philip Astley, quote, Astley would appear in some form of comic costume, disguised as Billy Button's The Tailor. The horse would be standing still, but when Billy Button's tried to mount, it would walk off, leaving him flat on his face. This would have been repeated several times. And so the routine continues, each time the horse getting the better of the rider, until eventually Billy Button's chases the horse around the arena, only to end up being chased by the horse. Finally, he manages to mount, reveals himself as Philip Astley, and continues with his exhibitions. It was a very popular routine and has continued to be so throughout the ages, appearing in numerous versions in many circuses. So big reveal. Very exciting. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and recognizable shtick, really, at this point. So these performances gained a lot of traction and became a bit of a family affair. Patty Astley, his wife, was also an accomplished horsewoman. And so she would collect the admission fees, which were sixpence for admission or a shilling for a seat. And then she would hop up on one of the horses and do some of her own stunts. And even later, in the later years, their son, John, also became one of the core performers. So just wildly talented equestrian family. (laughs) These people knew their horses, for Mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. They also started to include a bit more spectacle in their performances as they gained traction. You know, got to up the game a little bit. (laughs) According to Monica Hall in A Visitor's Guide to Georgian England, Astley, quote, also subsequently realized that other amusements in between the acts of dashing horses and acrobatic riders might be a profitable idea. Bring on the clowns and jugglers, music, dancing dogs, and eventually more exotic animals. There's a lot going on now. Yeah, dancing dogs. I mean, I'm in. Um, And so this tactic drew the crowds and their money. And in the first year, they were reputed to have made something like 40 guineas a day. As context, according to Ward, quote, his audience must have been quite large. If everyone paid one shilling as advertised, then it would have been at least 800 people. If they all paid sixpence each, then the crowd would have been about 1,600. So we could estimate that somewhere in the region of 1,000 people per performance were watching his shows. Yeah, so this was a very popular attraction. Yes. And they built on their success so that by 1773, they formally opened Astley's Amphitheater, which had a formal structure for admissions and some of the audience seating, though the arena was still open. By 1780, Astley had built up an enclosed structure around his arena so audiences could enjoy the performances in any weather. One of his competitors, Charles Dibden, imitated Astley's enclosed circular arena when he opened the Royal Circus and Equestrian Philharmonic Academy in 1782. Dibden added a stage in this enclosure as well, which made for more options for entertainment. When Astley's burned down in 1794, he rebuilt and opened the Royal Amphitheater a year later, and it copied Dibden's edition of the stage, so there was a circus ring as well as a stage. But he also included two ramps that connected the stage and arena so that he could do even more with both spaces. According to the Victoria and Albert Museum's post, The Story of the Circus, quote, This was an ingenious design, 
which heightened the possibilities for tricks and dramatic effect. The audience could sit close to the ring with horses swishing past their faces as they cantered up a ramp just a few inches away. So like exciting, you know? <laughs> what a thrill. Uh-huh. Um I would I would not pretty I'm 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 too I'm too reserved. There's a part of me that's like, I don't want to be that close to a racing horse. Thank you very much. <laughs> that's fair. Yeah, it's fair. <laughs> but I can see the appeal for some. Like I definitely understand that there's something about that proximity to the action that would really draw a crowd. You'll take one of the, like the nosebleed seats up in the yes, back. Yes, please. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> After the amphitheater burned down again in 1804, Astley again made changes to the staging, reinforcing everything to carry the weight of even more horses. And according to the V&A, quote, each time the theater was rebuilt, the interior became more ornate. Astley also continued to collect new acts from home and abroad, with clowns, rope walkers, and tumblers complementing the equestrian entertainment. There is so much more we could talk about when it comes to Astley's. We could talk about the fact that Astley performed for both English and French royalty. We could talk about how his amphitheater in Dublin was a political debacle, since Astley's insisted on putting on performances that were overtly pro-British, even in the wake of the failed Irish Rebellion of 1798, so, you know, like, not your best idea. And we could talk about all the legal and political maneuvering around the theater during this period, since this amphitheater didn't fit neatly into the definitions and restrictions of the age, and was therefore designated as a minor illegitimate theater. So there's so much we could talk about, but we thought we'd round out our discussion with just a few descriptions of some of the spectacles and writing tricks that one could expect if one attended Astley's. So here's an example from an advertisement for the show in 1772. Mr. Astley will display the broadsword and also ride on a single horse with one foot on the saddle, the other on his head, and every other feat which can be exhibited by any other, with an addition of 20 extraordinary feats, such as riding on full speed with his head on a common pint pot at the rate of 12 miles an hour, and etc. Whew. Woo, yeah. <laughs> I'm tired. I'm tired just like, you know, thinking about that. Yeah. And that was kind of like the standard where it's like, okay, you can expect 20 to 50 horse riding tricks that we're going to show. We're just going to give you like a little tiny little smattering here in the publicity. Another description from a 1768 manuscript reads, Among his performances are sweeping the ground with his hands and elbows, picking up a half crown piece or large weight carbine, pistol, and sword from the ground, all on full speed. His manner of fence and defense sword in hand, as in real action, several cuts at arm's length over the horse's head on full speed. So just swords <laughs> flying in the air. Flying leaps over the bar on one and two horses, with several other feats of activity, which were never before exhibited but by himself. Pretty much any kind of just like wild feats of acrobatics that you could imagine on a horse... Ashley tried that, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you can tell that, like, even in just the salesmanship of what's going on here, where they're just going to tell you, like, there's danger, there's full speed, there's, you know, like, things that should not be attempted. Come watch us do it. Not in a million years could you convince me to attempt any of this. Like, no thanks. <laughs> so let's bring all of this back to Austin's novel and how Astley shows up in Emma. First, it is fun to speculate when and where the Nightlies attended since there are a lot more options than are immediately obvious. 
Paula Byrne does a bit of the speculation in her doctoral thesis, Jane Austen and the Theater. She points out that most people assume that Austen is referring specifically to the amphitheater in Lambeth, that first site. However, Astley also had a theater in the Strand called the Olympic Pavilion or Astley's Pavilion, and they had a bunch of different names for it as well. So this might have also been where the Knightleys attended. She observes, quote, Austen's vagueness about dates and Emma, the theater visit takes place in late summer, and Harriet's marriage to Martin takes place shortly afterwards in late September, opens up the possibility of the references being to either the summer amphitheater in Lambeth or the winter Olympic house off Drury Lane. Strictly speaking, the summer season commenced on Easter Monday and closed about the end of September or the beginning of October. Byrne points out that Austin personally attended the Lambeth Amphitheater, which she wrote about in a letter to Cassandra in August of 1796. So maybe Austin meant that theater since she was more familiar with it. Conversely, Byrne writes, quote, The genteel John Knightleys visit Astley's as a treat for their young boys, and Harriet, on quitting their box, is made uneasy by the size of the crowds, which suggests the superior Olympic pavilion. Furthermore, the Lambeth Amphitheater had its own separate entrance for the boxes and the pit, with the gallery entrance 50 yards down the road. So it would be more likely that Harriet would encounter large crowds at the Olympic. The theater could hold 3,000 people. So even though there's like these two options, Byrne ultimately seems to come down on the side of the Olympic, since it was particularly known as a popular place to take children, and part of its draw was that the theater itself was made of the remains of an old naval ship. The deck of the ship was actually the main stage, and so I can definitely see why that would spark the imagination for young children. Yeah, I want to go to that. (laughs) That's like an extra level of like, this is designed for kids, basically. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Regardless of the specificity of the venue, this scene in Emma is such an unsung moment of matchmaking by the Knightley brothers, at least according to us (laughs) here on this podcast, okay? (laughs) This is something we believe deeply, okay? Mm -hmm. We understand that this is open to interpretation, but hear us out. So first, we have Mr. George Knightley sending Robert Martin to London to give John Knightley some papers where Harry just happens to be a guest, like, you know, like, oh. I've got some business to attend to. Would you mind just dropping these off? It's fine. And we get that phrasing, quote, I got him to take charge of some papers, which I was wanting to send. Some papers, just some papers. Was Robert Martin the only person who could have (laughs) taken care of this? I don't know. Right, right. We just think there might be a hint of a maneuver here. You know, just that's what we're saying. Right. And he's like, I got him to take charge. And it's like, "Mm, this... Hmm. I see you, George Knightley. I see what you're doing. And then we have John Knightley, who is rather quick with that invitation to Astley's with his family. And then we get a few more details about the evening. So this is from the book. On quitting their box at Astley's, my brother took charge of Mrs. John Knightley and little John. And he followed, he being Mr. Martin, and he followed with Miss Smith and Henry. And that at one time, they were in such a crowd as to make Miss Smith rather uneasy. Like, there's something like where, you know, Robert Merton gets to be protective and he gets to be, like, taking charge. Like, oh, okay, I've got Isabella. You just watch out. Can you take care of Harriet? Would you mind? You take Mm -hmm. care of her in this large crowd where she's going to need help. Just Mm -hmm. could you do that for me? Could you? Yep. 
this is this is what we have decided. Just let us have this, okay? <laughs> we need this. We really are into the idea of matchmaking nightly bros. We really, deeply. I'm invested <laughs> in this very, very deeply. <laughs> uh-huh. Then after that trip to Astley's, John's like, hey, why don't you come over for dinner? So, you know, like, yeah. it just feels like there's kind of like, hey, this guy seems like he was really interested in you at Astley's. Let's also invite him over for uh-huh. dinner. Uh-huh. So... At this dinner the next day, Mr. Martin feels pretty confident about renewing his proposal. Um, and, you know, everything is settled between him and Harriet, which is very sweet. And this whole proposal scene, like, all we actually get is just that he found an opportunity of speaking to Harriet and certainly did not speak in vain. She made him, by her acceptance, as happy even as he is deserving. So we don't really know, like, what room it happened in, like, mm-hmm, where or mm-hmm. how. We just know that at some point at this dinner, he found a moment presumably that's just the two of them to propose but also the idea of this happening like during dinner at the nightly residence and there are just swarms of children around their ankles (laughs) whilst robert martin like awkwardly declares himself is a very enjoyable image you know (laughs) but this is i mean this is also potential evidence of again nightlies being savvy because if they did get a chance to be by themselves i mean that would have taken some strategy like oh um let's can we, we're just gonna go to the other uh can you go into the other room and just grab that um yeah kid oh yeah oh mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden it's just the two of them just the two of them yeah uh-huh yep and then like two of the children like pop out from behind the curtains surprise <laughs> i yeah i love it this is this is again this is this is what we believe it's now canon for us so thank you for letting us have this moment we appreciate it deeply <laughs> But this is such a cute, like, second chance romance setting to have this happen at Astley's of all places. It's really quite fun to have it at a circus where it's playful and that sort of thing. And you can just imagine, like, they're, like, starry-eyed and, like, oh, yeah. this is so amazing. And then they're also looking at each other, like, did you see that? And yeah. oh, cute, 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 cute. So, so, so cute. And we have, as kind of a parting thought, we have from Paula Byrne, um, who makes a case for the setting being a very deliberate choice for these two characters that Austin has given us. She writes, Given Austin's scrupulous sense of class and realism, and the particular concern in Emma with fine discriminations within social hierarchies, it is by no means fanciful to attach considerable weight to her choice of Astley's for the reconciliation between Harriet and Robert Martin. Precisely because of its status as a minor, illegitimate theater, it was a place where a yeoman farmer and a girl who was without rank, carrying the stain of illegitimacy, we are reminded in the last chapter, could mingle freely with the gentry. So it's, this, it's the place where all these sorts of things can happen. There's something really kind of cool about this being the place that she sets up for this particular off-screen second chance romance. It's a place where sort of anything can happen, you know? Yeah. Like, a- anything is happening on the stage, like these kind right. of death-defying tricks, and then anything can be happening in the audience as well. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, romance. Yes. Yes. Astley's in romance. Who would have guessed, basically, is all I'm saying. (laughs) I mean, we would have, because we were like, nightly bros, matchmaking, co, you know. Right. Yes. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, if you have ever used an invitation to the circus as an opportunity to play matchmaker... (laughs) I mean, we definitely want to hear all about it. Like, tell us the entire story. (laughs) Every single detail. (laughs) Yes. You can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin. 
and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com, and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com with all those matchmaking stories. That's where you're going to send them. Um, (laughs) We need these. You can also check out our merch for the podcast on Redbubble. You can go to www.redbubble.com slash people slash about Austin slash shop. And that's a little bit unwieldy. So you can also just go directly to do not type in www or anything like that. Just type directly into your browser about austin.redbubble.com. Stay tuned for next episode where we will be talking about the haha at Southerton. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.